You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. As United Methodists, we read scripture through the lenses of tradition and reason and experience. We start with tradition because uh, very smart people for thousands of years have thought about scripture. And we might want to listen to them. And maybe, maybe that's where we begin that journey to see what the church is teaching about these scriptures. But, but we, don't, we don't stop there. We don't stop there. Tradition was written by us. It is our agreed upon stance. And sometimes over time, as we learn more about God, as we grow in our understanding of what it means to be a human being, sometimes interpretations change. Which is why we also use reason. We study context. We study culture. We study language. Scripture was written in Hebrew and also Greek, in some parts Aramaic, and it takes interpretation and study to learn these things. So we we use reason. We use our God gave us brains and we're called to use them. But we also don't stop there. We also read and interpret Scripture through the lens of experience. What does this look like on the ground? How is it being transformative in people's lives? For example, there are parts of the Bible uh, that affirm slavery, but as we go and learn more about us and learn more about God, we realize that owning humans is wrong and not the will of God. So our experience of these texts through the power of the Holy Spirit also informs how we interpret Scripture in our shared lives together. I am super passionate about reading scripture and teaching scripture and studying scripture, but that wasn't always the case. I I wasn't born a pastor, right? I went to LSU. That's about all. Like, I'm I'm not going to go any deeper into that. When I was in high school, uh, near the end of my sophomore year, I've told this story before, but near the end of my sophomore year, my friends uh, all met at the flagpole on Wednesday mornings, and we gathered for prayer. And our prayers were simple. Right? You know, gracious God, you know, help me today, help me get an A in chemistry, you know, this kind of thing, and just really, you know, important, huge, world changing things. Going into my junior year, however, uh, I stopped going to the flagpole because uh, I joined Key Club. I was the sergeant at arms at Key Club, you know, very important political position. Sergeant at Arms at Key Club. Key Club was a a service organization, right, uh, attached to Kiwanis. It just happened to be at the same time as when my friends were praying at the flagpole. Well, they noticed that I was missing from the flagpole. Uh, But instead of asking why (laughs) or wondering what was going on, I found out that they started praying for me and for my salvation, right? because I was not wearing the Michael W. W. Smith t-shirt, right? So they were just really concerned that I was listening to 311 and Bob Marley and and, and going to Key Club. Or as I like to say, we were building the wheelchair ramp that they were praying for. So these these things are not mutually exclusive. But I found out that they were were praying for me and my salvation. And friends, I was born, uh, I was basically born a Methodist. I grew up at First United Methodist Church in Slido, Louisiana. I was baptized, uh, uh, I don't know, five weeks old, went through through all the things, right? But they were praying for me because I was not at the flagpole on their schedule. So what did I do? I did not take that lying down. I was was a snot-nosed friend. So what I started doing, I started reading scripture for myself. I'll show them right? So it was Holy Week, my junior year. 
And I started reading scripture for myself, and I read the Gospel of Mark. And we've mentioned, I mentioned this, I think, last week, that I'm not the fastest reader on the planet. So I chose the Gospel of Mark because it's the shortest, right? So I started reading the Gospel of Mark, and I got to when Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and says, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. And I thought, well, that's definitive. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming when the clouds of heaven. Well, that's definitive. That's an affirmative answer. Now, I knew enough to know that Matthew was kind of the same as Mark and Luke was kind of the same as Matthew. So I turned to Matthew and, and read the same thing. Same question. Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath while Jesus is on trial. I charge you under oath, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Excuse me? That, that's not the same answer. In Mark, Jesus says, yes, I am. In Matthew, he says, you say that I am, but I say unto you. I thought I was unlocking like a Sherlock Holmes, something that no one had ever seen before, some great mystery written into the fabric of the universe. And I, w I was a little bothered by this. Not because Matthew and Mark disagreed, but that when was someone going to tell me that these stories are slightly different? So I said, you know what? Let's keep this train going. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. So I turned to the Gospel of Luke. Same story. I put you under oath. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power of God. All of them asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from ourselves, from, from his own lips. Excuse me? This is even more different than Mark and Matthew. In Luke, Caiaphas isn't mentioned by name at all. The questions aren't the same. Jesus' answer is much more eloquent. and It's in a different order. At this point, my heart began to race. Like this is, I feel like I'm, I'm discovering proof of UFOs or something, like in my bedroom as a junior in high school. Do I dare even turn to the Gospel of John? Do I, do I, do I dare to turn to the Gospel of John? Because I knew that John was altogether different. I didn't know to what extent. This is what John says. John says, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. There's, there's no conversation between Caiaphas or Jesus. There's, there's no opportunity for him to say, I am, or you have said so, but I say unto you, or uh, the way that Luke reports this, that if I tell you, you're not going to believe it anyway. There's not even an opportunity for this. This was unsettling to me. Again, not because the Gospels were different or that they couldn't be trusted, but why was no one telling me this? Why had no one mentioned that these stories were slightly different? Were, were people afraid of that? Were people, did they not know what to do with that? So I brought, I brought it to my friends at the flagpole, right? 
the, the local experts on Jesus. I brought them to the high council at the flagpole and said, what, what, what do I do with this? And he said, well, you know, with eyewitness accounts, you know, people hear different things and it's, rep- it's reported differently. And I thought, that's really unsatisfying to me. That doesn't, that doesn't sound right. And after doing some homework, it's, it's not that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were like all in the room like taking notes and they just heard different things. They're not recording different things that they're hearing. They're offering Jesus in a particular way for a particular reason. They are communicating their truth about Christ. Maddie mentioned earlier, where two or three are gathered, I will be there. That's not numbers. That's not what we tell the DS when it's a slow Sunday. Well, two or three were here, so. In the Jewish court system, you need at least two or three witnesses to proclaim something to be believable. In other words, where there is truth, Christ will be there. That's what that means. When you are in the midst of truth, you can trust that Christ is present. As I said, I'm really passionate about scripture, but that's not entirely true. Sometimes we use the word passion as if it's something that we really, really like. Like I'm super passionate about buffalo wings, which I am. But it's, it's not like you really like it or you'll, you'll do anything for it. Passion is something for which you will suffer. Passion is a suffering of. It's something that you wouldn't think twice about giving of yourself for it. Does something come to mind when I mention passion? What is your passion? What is something that you would suffer for? When Christy and I had our oldest, (laughs) um, it was a blessing. It was lovely. People gave us tons of presents. I had, you know, uh, the baby technology is amazing, right? So I had like things that warmed things to go into things and seats that would transform into things and, you know, Autobots roll out. It's just, baby technology is amazing. It was, it was, it was a lovely time. And then, and then you realize, oh my God, this child doesn't sleep ever. And this child... We tried rocking, we tried baby Einstein, we tried lassoing the moon and pulling it closer. And then when it came too bright, we pushed the moon past Saturn. Nothing was working except putting her in the car seat and driving up and down Uri Drive at 3 a.m. Like finally, when we're, it's, it's, it's 3.45 in the morning in the car, she's like, ah, there we go, you know. We even tried like putting her in the car seat and putting her on the dryer. And she looked at us like we were morons. Like, are you serious? You know, I don't want a simulation ride here. Like, I want the real deal, right? I think parents are passionate about their children. They would would suffer for their kids. And and, and I think most parents would agree and not think twice uh, about that. Is that really suffering? It felt like it at the time. But maybe your passion story is different. Maybe your passion cuts a bit deeper. Uh, This week I was in Orlando at a recruiting event for young clergy, 18 to 26-year-olds. And on the plane ride back, I'd never seen it, uh, I watched 1917. Have you seen this movie? 
it's about World War I, and it's about a journey of one kid, really, getting to where he needs to be. And it's, it's shot as if it's one continuous shot. He had to get a message to someone across enemy lines. Didn't think twice. Got up and started moving. Passion. Is that part of your story? Maybe you have served overseas in wartime. Maybe you've given up a career for someone who needed you. Or counseled a friend through a debilitating addiction. What do we love enough to suffer for? Passion isn't fun, but it can be joyful. Joy is the steadfast, this is going to go on my tombstone, joy is the steadfast assurance that God is with us. Sometimes that's a happy feeling, but often it is the bloom that emerges from the rubble. When we feel the assurance that God is present in the midst of suffering love, passion and joy come together to reveal that nothing is beyond redemption. When we feel the assurance that God is present in the midst of suffering love, passion and joy come together to reveal that nothing is beyond redemption. Over these next 40 days of Lent, we're going to be talking about Jesus' passion. Many mark the beginning of Jesus' passion as the Garden of Gethsemane, when after the Lord's the Last Supper, after the Last Supper, they go out singing and they go into the garden. And I want to first take a look at Mark's gospel, where Jesus is in the garden suffering. Pay attention to the words, pay attention to the language. Pay attention to how Jesus is feeling in this moment. It goes like this. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John, and Jesus began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake And going a little farther, he threw himself down on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. If we read closely the words that describe how Jesus was feeling, it says Jesus was distressed agitated, deeply grieved. Jesus is not uh, offering an anointing word, uh, anointed word against the Pharisees or calling the masses to repentance or, or calling you to love your neighbor and love your enemy. In this moment, Jesus is wrestling with himself. Jesus pleads with God for the cup to be removed. But Jesus surrenders and relinquishes his life to the humiliation of the cross. Jesus' wrestling invites our own. And these gospels point to this wrestling in different ways. Mark is offering a story that is raw and intimate 
Only in Mark's gospel do we get this language of Abba, Father, which means Daddy or Papa. In other words, in Mark's gospel, what Mark is saying is that suffering is intimate. God is very close. If we read the same thing in Matthew, Matthew's account is a little bit more formal. Matthew suggests that maybe there's there's some distance between Jesus and God. There's no Abba language. In Luke, Jesus is in agony. It says that an angel comes to attend to him and he was bleeding like sweat. His sweat was like drops of blood. Jesus was in complete agony in this moment. Now, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus goes three times to check on the disciples during prayer. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. In Luke, friends, there was no time for that. Because sometimes suffering feels like it's all happening at once. There's no time for anything except for the agony that you're feeling. And then there's John. You will hear me say that a lot over the next several weeks. And then there's John, which is very different. In John, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And before going to the garden, there are three chapters worth of Jesus' final discourse to them. And you know the language. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. All of this happens before they go out to the garden. And while Jesus is going out in the garden, he meets Judas. There's no time for prayer. There's no time for agony. There's no time for the disciples to fall asleep. Sometimes in the midst of suffering, we are vulnerable. It is intimate. Sometimes when we suffer, we feel that God is distant. Sometimes in the midst of suffering, the agony is too great to even be cognizant of time. And then some of you know... (laughs) that sometimes suffering seems to drag on for eternity. These gospels offer us permission to recognize that suffering is not one size fits all. That is the beauty of the places in which they do not agree. But there is one thing in the garden that the disciples or or that the, the gospels all agree on is that when Jesus was arrested, the disciples fled. They agree on that. They agree that in Jesus' most vulnerable moment, he was abandoned by those who knew him the best. Contrast brings clarity, but so does consensus. And maybe that's the lesson today. The disciples abandoned Jesus. Let us not abandon each other. Let us not suffer in isolation. During the season of Lent, the church encourages you to give something up or to take something on as a discipline to be intentional about your faith. It's not, let me give up chocolate so I lose a couple of pounds. It's a good thing, right? that there's more at work here. What has become a distraction 
to your relationship with God, your relationship with each other. Being intentional sometimes means removing barriers. Being intentional sometimes means building strategic ones. For example, uh, what I am doing for Lent is I'm trying not to waste time. Sometimes that means removing barriers. Sometimes that means building strategic ones. Mr. Jimmy. I have a friend named Mr. Jimmy. Uh, he's a professor at LSU, or he was at LSU. He's at Mississippi State now. Um, and he was, he's an agronomist, or as he liked to say, a weed scientist. It was the most popular hat on campus at LSU. LSU, weed science. Because people were really interested in agronomy, obviously. Mr. Jimmy would give me amazing wisdom. Very Jesus uh, agrarian uh, wisdom that you just can't get anywhere. Mr. Jimmy, he had a real thick southern drawl, Mr. Jimmy did. And he played the blues guitar. He, moon he was moonlighting as a blues guitarist. Of course he was. You know, so he'd come up to me and he goes, you're a city boy, aren't you? I said, yeah, you know, I grew up in Slidell, right? You know? um, he goes, you know what a weed is? I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think I know. <laughs> I'm not telling you that I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said, weed is just an unloved flower growing in the wrong place. And in the kingdom of God, there ain't no weeds. I'm going to say that again. A weed is just an unloved flower growing in the wrong place, and in the kingdom of God there ain't no weeds. How beautiful is that? Jimmy also said, unless you're working slow, you're wasting time. Ooh. <laughs> say more. And what he meant was, he goes, he chuckles every year. It's kind of like when folks say, like, oh my gosh, there's a full moon this Easter. There's always a full moon at Easter. <laughs> that's how, did you know? That's how we know when Easter is. Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the, the vernal equinox. That's how, you, that's how we know when Easter is. We look at the stars and the moon and we put it on the calendar. So I, I chuckle and people, oh my gosh, how cool is that? There's a full moon on Good Friday. Of course there is. That's how, that's how we know when it is. But Jimmy would laugh of all the people as soon as it got warm, They'd go to Lowe's, they'd go to Home Depot, they would start planting things. He's like, mm, if you don't work slow, you're going to waste time. He goes, never plant until the last freeze before Easter. He goes, there's always one last freeze. He goes, and the stores know that. They're going to put everything on sale about two and a half weeks before the last freeze. Because you're going to plant, and it's going to freeze, and you have to do it all over again. Unless you work slow, you're wasting time. So Jim was saying, be patient. So my Lenten discipline is to work slow so that I don't waste time. Sometimes that means removing barriers. Sometimes that means building very strategic ones. I pray that you have a discipline that you're working on this season of Lent. And I also pray that that discipline is not a secret. It's not like... It's 11-11 on the clock and we like make a secret wish or it's like a birthday, like you blow out the candles and you make a secret wish, you don't tell anybody what the wish is. So let's not do that, friends. We are a community of faith. We should be praying for one another during this time, this intentional time to reconnect. In fact, I want you to look at the person on your left and say, I'm going to pray for you. 
You can do it, Methodist. It's fine. You can speak out loud. Look to the person on your left and say, I'm going to pray for you. Now look to the person on your right and say, I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. I love the white middle-class Protestants always get nervous when they have to speak in church. It's fine, friends. I'm going to pray. So after worship, after worship, I want you to connect with whoever you said that to and say, so what am I praying for? Right? What's your Lenten discipline? What do you need help with? How can we journey together on this road? What discipline are you following this season? Let us not abandon one another during this season. Maybe that's the lesson. Because if you, if, you, if you gather at the flagpole with your friends and one of them stops showing up, and instead of asking where they are or what they're doing or saying like, hey, maybe we should change the time of our prayer meeting so that everybody can be welcome, and you start praying for their own salvation, be careful. Because you just might create a preacher out of them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray, friends.